0: Everybody, welcome to the Radical Candor podcast. I'm Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor and co-founder of Radical Candor the company. As you will learn today, I am also now the author of Just Work: Get Shit Done Fast and Fair, and the co-founder of Just Work the company.
1: Welcome, everyone. I'm Amy Sandler, your host for the Radical Candor podcast, and we've got a special episode for you today as part of our Radically Candid conversation series. Kim's new book, you just heard about it, Just Work, Get Shit Done, Fast and Fair, comes out March 16th. She's launching a new company alongside the book with Trier Bryant. I'm talking with Kim and Trier today about bias, bullying, and prejudice in the workplace and why this book and company are more relevant now than ever. So Kim, let's talk about Just Work, the book. We'll start there and we'll move into the company. And I know you're you're not a fan of the whole what's the book about question. Read the book, just read the book. But since it's not out yet, we've, we've got to ask the question, what is Just Work about? And I think even more interestingly, why did you write it?
0: Well, I've probably been writing this book in my head my whole life, but it crystallized when I was giving a radical candor workshop in Silicon Valley at a company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company, was an old friend and one of two few black woman CEOs in tech. And she pulled me aside after the, after the workshop and she said, you know, Kim, I love the ideas of radical candor and I think this is going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you that radical candor is, it's much harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. And it's probably much harder for you than it is for your husband. She said, if if I offer somebody, even the most compassionate candor, even the gentlest bit of criticism, I often get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. I knew this was true about her. And I also realized in that moment that I had known her for the better part of a decade, and I had never seen her seem even the tiniest bit annoyed. And believe me, in that period of time, she had what to be annoyed about. And it had really never occurred to me the, the toll that must take on her. And so even though I I never wanted to think of myself as a victim of workplace injustice, even less did I wanna think of myself as a perpetrator of it. And yet in that moment, I realized I had, I had played both roles in, in a lot of ways. And I wanted to understand that better. And that was kind of the beginning of sitting down to to write just work.
1: So helpful to set off the, you know, why did you write the book? I'd also love to bring Trier Bryant into the conversation as we unpack the ideas in the book and Trier, you're the CEO of the new company, Just Work, the company that Kim is co-founding with you to put the ideas uh, from the book into practice, just like Kim did with Jason Rosoff and Radical Candor. So Trier, you've been an officer in the U.S. Air Force, a leader at Goldman Sachs, Twitter and Astra. You also founded a DEI consulting firm. And so I'm really curious, how did you first hear about Just Work? And were you already aware of Kim and Radical Candor?
2: Yeah. Well, happy to be here, Amy. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. I've heard of Kim and Radical Candor. You know, if you're a leader and you don't have Radical Candor in your leadership toolkit, then your toolkit is not up to par. And I really loved Radical Candor because Radical Candor gave me the language and a framework of how I think, you know, caring personally, and giving feedback and those principles are taught in the military. So it was like, oh yes, people who are not in the military read this. This is how we do it. Kim and I met through, you know, networks, mutual friendships here in the area. And, you know, when she gave me a copy of the book, the framework in, in, in this new book, in Kim's new book, was just very powerful for me. As I reflected on my own experiences in the workplace and how she just framed and, and named workplace injustices, it really challenged me to rethink some of the experiences that I've had, and not just as a person being harmed, but also as a leader and my responsibility to prevent workplace injustices as well, and it was so powerful to me that I said, Kim, how how do we get this in front of as many people and into as many organizations as possible? And she was like, let's start a company. And I was like, let's do
1: it. Let's do it.
2: (laughs) So here we are.
1: We're thrilled to have you join the team Trier. Uh, Kim, what was it about Trier specifically that got you really excited to partner with her?
0: Well, I love so many things about Trier. When I first, when, when I first saw Trier's bio, I was like, wow, this is a woman who knows how to get shit done. Just awesome to see her set of experiences. And then when I met Trier in person, I loved her even more. We took the walk that I often when I start to work with someone new, I drag them up and down the hills around and Trier very joyfully went on that walk with me and uh, and we just hit it off. That's so great. So some cardio capacity is is
1: important uh, (laughs) in the job description. Uh, You know, one of the things that you both mentioned was some of the different roles that are involved when it comes to just work. So I heard about leaders, I heard about people being harmed, people causing harm, as well as this framework. And Kim, we know you love a a framework. yes. So just help us understand at a high level, the just work
0: framework and the roles involved. So, In Just Work, one of the things that I wanted to do was really different. I think very often when we talk about workplace injustice, we want to assume it's always unconscious bias and nobody meant to do anything wrong and I realized as I was thinking through the things that had happened to me throughout my career and the stories I heard from other people is that often it is unconscious bias, but sometimes it's something worse than that. Sometimes it's a very conscious prejudice and other times it is bullying. So I'm trying to distill these three very different attitudes and behaviors down to something simple. So to me, bias is not meaning it, prejudice is meaning it, and bullying is being mean. What I tried to do in the book, and what I think will really come to life with Trier and I starting this company, is I tried to sort of illustrate these three different problems bias, prejudice, and bullying with stories from my own career. But more importantly, I want to get other people's stories in because one of the benefits, I think, of the way I write is I tell personal stories, but that's also a huge limitation. I'm limited by my own lived experiences. And so I tried to come up with a framework that would help me understand my experiences, but also help other people understand their experiences.
1: Trier, tell me from your perspective, when you hear Kim talking about the sharing of stories and different lived experiences, what's your perspective about the importance of people sharing stories?
2: I think there's just so much that we can learn from one another, but I think stories makes it personal. I think that a lot of times when we focus on the theoretical, people will say, oh, sure. Theory or research may say that that happens, but when you can make it personal, you really start to think about the impact and, and have empathy for that person, whether you know them or not. Right. So a lot of times individuals won't know Kim and I on a personal level, but when we're sharing that story and the impact that it had. And so I think it's not just the story, but it's also how it made that person feel right. As Maya Angelou
1: says, you'll, you may forget, you know, someone's name, but you'll never forget how someone makes you feel. Absolutely. And so when we talk about bias, prejudice, and bullying, unfortunately, I think I can say with some confidence, you probably have each had some experience in each of these categories. So I would love to hear some of your stories from each of these categories. First of all, Kim said not everything is unconscious bias, but a lot of it gets put into that category. You gave us the the framework, but just share a, a story of bias and maybe distinguish why that was bias and not something else. And then we'll get into prejudice and bullying
0: bias i would say my first bias story came on the first day of my first internship of my career so i'm 18 years old i'm in memphis working at a bank and i'm standing by the elevator and an executive at the bank walks up to me and asks me what my role is and i explained that i was a summer intern and he said oh i didn't know they let us hire pretty girls who knows what to say in that moment? I didn't know what to say. So I didn't say anything. And I also, in this case, I knew it wasn't prejudice. I knew this guy didn't have a deep seated sort of prejudice against women. Uh, He was, in fact, the whole purpose of the internship was to get more women into the bank. So he was trying to hire more women. And I also knew he wasn't trying to bully me. I mean, this guy was not a jerk. And I knew he didn't mean any harm. But he did great harm to me in that moment because with those words, I decided that I couldn't make my career in Memphis, that I had to leave my hometown. Now, of course, you can forgive me for not knowing what to say when I was 18 years old, but... Fast forward 30 years, I'm now the author of Radical Candor, the book about workplace communication, and I'm supposed to know what to say. And I'm writing this new book, Just Work, and I'm trying to think what I should have said, and I still can't think what I should have said. And so this is hard. I I want to sort of just pause here and say it's hard to know how to respond even to bias from someone who means you no harm. Curious, Trier, as you hear Kim's bias story, I'd love to hear one of your stories
1: and just based on your different lived experiences, you know, what what you take away from that of what Kim's story was like and, you know, one of your bias stories.
2: Yeah, I I can recall a time when I was uh, about to get into an Uber to go to work um, where the office was on market street. And so I get into my Uber and the Uber driver said, Hey, you're headed to market street. Where are you going? And I said, Hey, I'm, I'm headed into work. I work at Twitter. The HQ is right there. And the Uber driver responds with, Oh, I didn't know that Twitter had a call center in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, I, I said, "Well, actually, they don't." And I took that as an opportunity to educate the Uber driver, uh, who I would identify as a, a white man, of what my role was at Twitter, being uh, you know on a people leadership team, leading several of the recruiting and talent acquisition functions. And so it was interesting because by the end of the conversation, then that very quickly shifted into, "Oh, well, can I get a job at Uber?" Right? <laughs> so, um, Twitter, <laughs> right? Or uh, Twitter. The bias there, you know, was clear is that me as a black woman and saying, Oh, I work at Twitter, he just, you know, and he didn't mean it, you know, to the point of of the definition that we use in the framework of bias is not meaning it, but he did have bias of thinking that as a black woman, if I work at Twitter that I I must work in a call center. Did it. So, you know, bias, it shows up in different ways and you know, similar to Kim's story is that, you know, how does that make you feel? And then what is that burden? And what is that pain that it can inflict? And sure, if it's one time, it's not a big deal. But when we have, when we're having these constant experiences, time after time, day after day, it eventually
1: takes a toll on us, right? And, and it impacts us.
2: That's just one of my bias stories.
1: Can you just share with us a little bit of the kind of emotional journey when someone says that to you and how often you've had to deal with that and what your responses are and how you've had to learn how to respond Trier.
2: Yeah, Amy, honestly, it's exhausting. It is just so exhausting of the bias and the microaggressions that people experience, but particularly for me and here in tech, it's been a very different experience um, in the biases that I have experienced versus even in comparison to like Wall Street and Goldman Sachs. I think one of the things that I've learned very quickly is, um, you know, in the military, you can quickly see my rank, right, I'm an officer and then I have a badge of my career field, so there's these identifiers that force some type of respectability within that engagement. When I was at Goldman on Wall Street, it would be people would look at your shoes and your suit. Is it a good suit? Is it a tailored suit? What kind of shoes are you wearing? Expensive shoes to kind of understand, like, okay, how senior are you, right? How how important are you? How big of a decision maker are you? But the interesting thing in tech is that Jack Dorsey can walk down Market Street on the way to work, whether that's at Twitter or at you know Square, and he can wear a hoodie and he's a billion dollar CEO, but we have Trayvon Martin that wears a hoodie and someone thinks that, you know, he's, he's violent and and scared. So there's such a stark contrast of how people have these perceived biases and how they engage with individuals. And so for me, I know that when I'm walking down the street on market and I have a hoodie, people don't think that I work in tech or that I could be a leader in the tech industry, I may be seen as a homeless person or someone else where actually someone on my team who was wearing a, you know, the things are in style now where you buy distressed clothes with holes in them. And so there was someone on my team who was walking down the street on market on the way to the office. And, um, he said that he felt like people engaged him differently because he had on a very expensive, really cool hoodie with holes in it, but it was designer. Right. But, He's a black man walking down the street in the market and it was, he was received differently. And it's just exhausting. You know, Kim and I have had conversations of how many times has she forgot her badge and needed to piggyback in the door and no one questions it versus how many times I've tried to piggyback through the door, but I get questioned, do you work here? what team are you on? Where's your desk located to verify that I'm actually a part of the organization. And so how does it feel? It's taxing, it's draining. And, and what I always tell leaders is that for every second that I go back to my desk and I'm reflecting and thinking on those experiences, that's every second that I'm not doing my work and actually contributing and, and doing the work and the impact that an organization is paying you to do.
1: Yeah. And that goes to the whole point of just work, which is creating a more productive, a more efficient, a happier workplace. So, Truf, thank you so much for sharing those experiences. And, you know, Kim, as you hear Trier share that, I'm curious, part of your framework is looking at what the various roles can do. So can you walk us through, when you hear some of what Trier is sharing, you know, how would you as a leader, how would you as the person causing harm, try to address some of what Trier is talking about?
0: All of us play four different roles pretty much every day. And sometimes you are the leader. And when you are the leader, it's your job to try to create a kind of environment that will prevent those experiences from happening. Of course, you're never, this is the joy of being a leader. You're never really going to succeed in preventing bias, prejudice, and bullying from happening. But that's your job, is to to respond to them in a way that prevents. So one of the things that Tria and I can talk about a little bit later is bias disruptors. What are the things that we can do? What are the norms we can create as leaders to make sure that when bias gets expressed in a meeting or in the hallway, that the upstanders, that other people who are around will throw a purple flag or say something, say, I don't think you meant that quite the way it sounded. So that the person who's harmed by the bias doesn't always have to be the one who's doing the work of pushing against it. So that brings me to the second role that we have is is upstander, and this is an this is a, a word that is prone to misinterpretation. So I want to pause on it for a second. When I say upstander, what I mean is don't be a silent bystander. You want to stand up to the person who who said or did the the biased. Or prejudice or bullying thing, but it's not a matter of trying to come in with some sort of savior complex for the people who are harmed. So when I say upstander, it is your job to respond. It is you. You must respond. You can't just remain. Well, you can, but if you won't be an upstander, if you remain silent in the face of these uh, problematic attitudes and behaviors in the work in the, in the workplace, and then other times you are the person who has been harmed by workplace injustice. The reason why we all want to solve these problems is that we are all harmed by it because our collective efforts are harmed by it. But sometimes it's really directed at you. And so when you're the person harmed, you get the right to choose whether or not to respond. But one of the things that Triera and I have talked a lot about is ending the default to silence. If you choose to be silent, that's your right. But I think very often, at least for me, throughout my career, I sort of defaulted to silence and that robbed me of my agency. So one of the things Triera and I have talked a lot about is what are the things we can offer? What are the tools we can offer people harmed so that they can choose their response? And last but not least, we all play the role of the person who causes harm from time to time, even if we don't intend to. At the very least, we all express bias from time to time. And it is our obligation to listen to feedback when we hear that we have been biased and to address the problem. And this is hard because most people feel deeply ashamed when they become aware that they have harmed another person. And we've got to learn how to move through that shame to a productive uh, response that makes amends. Yeah.
2: One thing just to also highlight on what Kim said, because understanding the definition of upstander is really important because a lot of times even if the person who is being harmed does you know have a response an upstander can still be active, say something. And the reason why this is important is there was an instance where I had given someone feedback of something that someone said, and I was giving this feedback to someone who actually identifies as Asian. It was feedback specifically of something that they had said that was offensive to a Black person. And they were incredibly apologetic. But when I went away, they came back later and they said, Hey, the other person that was in that meeting who is actually someone identifies as white also gave them feedback that it was inappropriate. And so that let that person know, hey, it wasn't just something where, oh, well, Trier was offended by that because she was Black, and I didn't know that because we identify differently. But to have someone else who identifies in a different way say, hey, yeah, that was bad, and I even know that that was inappropriate, it signaled again to the person causing harm, hey, I should have known that. Because a lot of times I think that people try to brush things off as, well, I can't know everything that's offensive to everyone, but there are some things where we just should take ownership of, hey, we should have the understanding and that we should be worldly enough to just know that that would be offensive to to another person.
1: Such an important point on the role of the upstander. And even if you think it might not impact something in that specific instance for people to feel supported and to provide more data, because if you don't, it's invisible. And how do we bubble that up? We, we reinforce the importance of upstanders, how we can all play a role, how important that is. And I think that's where, you know, Trieres, you share that story of, of being in the Uber. I mean, I, I really felt just so much empathy and having not had that sort of experience. And that gives me, I think hearing those stories makes me want to be an upstander even more. So I think the value in sharing the stories is, can we sort of get out of our comfort zone so that we can really take whatever perceived risk we might feel to be in support of the things that matter most. So I think, first of all, thank you for sharing the story. And I think that gives us some extra energy to really act uh, in the face of, of bias. And so, Kim, you also mentioned about prejudice and bullying. Prejudice is meaning it and bullying is being mean. Can you walk us through in more detail those uh, the distinction between prejudice, bullying from bias that we've already spoken about?
0: Sure. So w- why don't I do that by telling you a prejudice story? I was in a meeting one time and chit-chatting with this guy before a meeting. And the guy says to me, you know, my wife doesn't work because it's better for the children. And I tend to assume in these moments where people (laughs) say something that's potentially offensive to me, I tend to assume it's biased. And in this case, I assumed it was biased, and to sort of give him a graceful way out, I made a little joke, and I said, oh, yeah, well, I decided to show up at work today because I thought it would be a good idea to neglect my children. And I was expecting the guy to say, oh, I didn't mean it like that. But no, he doubled down. And he's like, oh, no, Kim, you don't understand. I have all these studies that show it's really bad for the children when the mom works. And, you know, I have these twins who are three at the time. And so that was much harder for me to sort of take on board than than if it had been biased because he really believed this. And and it could potentially have impact on my career because we were working on a project together that demanded some travel and he was going to assign, he might not assign me the plum assignments because he thought I shouldn't travel and it was not his place to decide how I should raise my kids. So that's my prejudice story. are you have a really, a really strong one as well. Yeah. So I actually, in this,
2: in this story, played a upstander, but I, would, I have to acknowledge an unsuccessful upstander. When I was at a company and had the opportunity to sit on a hiring panel and we interviewed lots of candidates throughout the day, And one of the candidates that I interviewed was a black woman and she came into the interview and she was wearing her natural hair and it was beautiful. And so after we interviewed at the end of the day, when we were debriefing and going up over all the candidates, the black woman who had come in that we all had met, she was by far the best candidate, had the best feedback. Um, We just knew that she was absolutely stellar, would do a great job. And she had a really, really great background. And as we were debriefing on the feedback from all the interviewers, the hiring manager paused and said, "Mm, but I don't know if we're going to be able to hire her because we won't be able to put her in front of the business. And I kind of looked around like who's going to like put her in front of the business, like meaning what? And I said, so what do we mean by that to the hiring manager? This is a white woman. And she said, Oh, well, Trier, we can't put her in front of the business with her hair. Her hair doesn't look like yours and mine. Now, Amy, that time I was wearing my weave. So my hair did not look like this white woman's hair, right? My hair in its natural state, the way that I'm wearing it right now, looked like the, like, looked like the black woman. And so I really pushed back on this, um, you know, because there's nowhere in the job description that says anything about how you wear your hair to be successful in this role. And she was clearly the most competent and the best candidate for the role. And so what we talk about a little later as far as like when power is introduced into this framework, that black woman did not actually end up getting hired. So the hiring manager then had the power to make the decision not to hire her because of her hair. And so that with prejudice, with power, that then turns into discrimination. This happens so frequently actually that California was the first state to pass legislation called the Crown Act that prohibits employers from discriminating against individuals due to their hair in the employment process.
0: It's an amazing it's, story. It's yeah, so it's such upsetting.
1: A, it's, a, it's very upsetting. And, you know, you brought in the, the idea of power. I'm really curious when you said an unsuccessful upstander, as you look back on this story and how much of it, you know, when power gets thrown into it, but what could have been different in that story from your perspective? What would a just work environment have looked like in that case?
2: I appreciate the question because in that moment, I felt like an unsuccessful bystander. That's just being hard on myself. Yeah. Uh, but when I found out that the person wasn't hired and this was in a state that didn't have this law at the time, and I went to my boss, who is the chief diversity officer, and I told her this story. And what ended up happening was that this is an organization that had the structure in place to hold people accountable for that type of behavior. So not only was this hiring manager talked to, but made an example of in a positive way to say hey this happened this shouldn't happen we were you know we educated the recruiting team so that if this occurred again in recruiting debriefs that recruiters could flag it and you know work through that and call hiring managers and interviewers out so while that particular instance like she didn't get the job i do feel that like moving forward this organization did not repeat that mistake That I did have, I was able to go to a leader and we put the infrastructure in place to prevent that from happening again.
1: I would say that's a
0: pretty successful upstanding.
1: Yeah. And I just really want to call out how how hard we are on ourselves. And also just going back, Pierre, to what you were saying of just sort of the exhaustion of having to address it. And, you know, in the moment you might not have felt like it, it played out the way you wanted to, but you, that didn't stop you from actually taking additional action and making change. And so I just really want to applaud that. I want to call that out. And I want to encourage everyone listening. It should not just fall in the triers of the world. Like <laughs> we, we all need to, to do that and take responsibility so that the, the work is, is split out more equitably.
2: Yeah. And and this is an organization, you know, calling out of like, well, what happens when organizations put into practice some of these things? And so in, in the book, we talk about the framework of the solutions that are coupled with the problems of what can leaders do to prevent this from happening, right? Having checks and balances, measuring the bias in one of them for prejudice of having a code of conduct. Right. And so even though it, 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 we say code of conduct, but it doesn't mean that it has to be this written out official thing. It just needs to have something with teeth in it. And so I think in this example, what had teeth in it. It was the fact that we went and we educated the recruiters to say, okay, this can happen in the future and we are providing you, you know, this training to let you know that this is not appropriate. So we just need to make sure that you have within the organization um, that you're managing people's expectations as
1: far as what is acceptable, and what's not acceptable, and then you hold them accountable to that. So we've talked about prejudice. We've talked about bias. Let's move on to bullying. As Kim, you like to say, being
0: mean. Being have mean. I- Being mean. How about a being mean story? So I am really nice, but sometimes I I, I try to be really nice. (laughs) Anyway, sometimes I fail. So I will tell a a bullying story where I am the person who caused harm. This happened with Russ Laraway, who many of the listeners are familiar with, uh, with whom I did a podcast a few years ago. And Russ and I were in the recording studio, and everybody was a woman except for Russ. And we were talking about Amy Cuddy's power pose. And I adore Amy Cuddy, and and I love the Wonder Woman pose, and it's been very helpful to me, actually, as a speaker and as a coach. And I said something about her research that was incorrect, and Russ tried to correct me. And I got kind of defensive on... I was wrong, and in fact, Amy Cuddy had said I was wrong, but I got defensive on her behalf, and so I lashed out at Russ, and I said, Russ, and you've got it. if you don't know Russ, he's he's a big guy, he's a Marine, Uh, and I said, Russ, you were born doing a power pose, and everybody just like she was like silenced. It's utterly silenced. I was bullying Russ for his gender and it had the impact of, of shutting him down, which was hard, harmed him. It also, I also harmed myself because I needed to hear what he was trying to tell me and it harmed the whole podcast. And in fact, several people listening to the podcast wrote in later and it's like, Kim, like, why were you such a jerk? Some of the people listening thought Russ was like, it created a whole swirl and we were able to work through it, but it, it was really bad. And, and it made me think like, what was it? And this is important. I think, what was it about that moment that caused me to behave like a, a such a jerk? And I think part of the issue in that moment is that it was like one of those rare times in my career where, where I was in the majority in terms of gender. Um, I was often in the majority in terms of my race, but it was one of the few times that I was in the majority in terms of gender. And I think that little bit of power together with me feeling a little defensive and a little stressed just caused me to lash out. And I think it's useful. Brene Brown has a, she, she talks about recognizing signs in your body. And when I'm about to act like a jerk. I get a certain feeling in my body and I've tried to recognize that so I can stop myself. It's like building muscle memory for one's own behavior so that I can try not to be a jerk.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, one of the things we do in radical candor is we share our own stories of when we were acting in a way where we received radical candor or we were acting in a way that was obnoxiously aggressive, et cetera. And I, as I think about the different roles, I think it is so important that even though we would never we would hope that we were not the person causing harm, that we, in fact, can play all four of these roles. And so, Kim, I appreciate your sharing that story. Trier, do you hear Kim's story? I think what's so interesting is that when you have been the minority for so long in certain categories, and as Kim called out, not in terms of race, but in terms of gender, how almost that pent-up frustration, how it expresses itself in a way that is maybe not as, as ideal as we'd like. What comes up for you as you hear Kim's telling of that story in terms of bullying, either bullying that you've received or that you have been the person uh, giving.
2: So Amy, the interesting part is everything in the book around bullying was probably the most profound to me, both on a personal level and a professional level. You know, if you had asked me before reading this book, have you ever been bullied in your career? I would say No have you met me? Like, have you worked with me? Like you come for me, I'm going to come for you. Right. So I would have never thought that I had been bullied in my career. And then I read this book and I, it, it really just like, I had a physical reaction of just, oh my gosh, Trier, like outside of the military where basic training, where clearly they're bullying you. But even outside of that, Trier, you've been bullied a lot in your career. Like people just being mean just to be mean. And that was tough for me to think about and reflect on because then I really thought I never stood up for myself. I never stood up for myself. I never called it out, but how could I, because I couldn't name it in that way. And so the other interesting part is in this framework, when you think about bias, prejudice, and bullying, I can name it to be that before I could and I did it. But I think what's exciting is generationally where you were when you started your career and how long you've been in the workplace, you have a different perspective on what you should be expecting in the workplace. And so for me, Amy, you know, my mother spent her entire career being an executive in the pharmaceutical industry and as a black woman executive and having to navigate predominantly white and male spaces. I saw her do that. And so she prepared me and, and she had this, you know, she definitely raised me with a sense that Trier, you're not necessarily going to be able to change the workplace, but this is how you navigate it. And this is how you deal with it. So it was more of like a dealing with it. And so I don't think that I could also name that as bullying because it was almost like I was expecting it. Not to say that I deserve it, um, but I was expecting it, and I had a mindset that I that I had to deal with it and I had to tolerate it. And I think that now in 2021, and definitely in the most last couple of years of my career, I've changed the perspective that. I don't have to deal with it. I shouldn't have to deal with it. And I can call it out and I don't have to navigate it, but I can stop it and hold people accountable. And so I appreciate it of this book of giving me the language to name it so that we can together solve it. And not only just as an individual, but as a leader as well. And, And bullying, I think is one of the hardest things for leaders to combat because a lot of times I have found, especially if I had chief people officer hat on, A lot of times bullying works for bullies and bullies have a confidence to behave in that manner because they know that they're protected probably a lot of times by their performance. So you have like the brilliant jerk in the organization where they know that they're performing and they know that they're making that impact, but then they also behave badly, but they're leaving a trail of people that they've harmed along the way. And I think that those are really difficult personalities and employees for leaders to combat. And and that's, again, as a leader, that was one of the areas where I acknowledge that I struggled to prevent that, of putting in the consequences that is talked about in the book
1: of how you stop and prevent bullying. Trier, you've shared so much I want to highlight. I think this is a really important part of, of just where we are in this moment, just acknowledging that we're actually, you know, one of the things, Kim, with Radical Candor, you would talk about, well, you know, command and control doesn't work. It's about collaboration. And I feel like there's also this moment that Trier was speaking with of, just sort of putting up with it or expecting it, or this is the way it is. And, and you have to fit into sort of the way this systemic injustice is. And now we're at this moment of saying, no, I'm not going to say that this is the way the world is and I want to create a new vision of a just workplace. So I, I really want to call that out. I think it's very exciting and acknowledging that based on where people are with their lived experiences and, and Trier, I thought that was such a great point about starting in the workplace based on where people are and what they've experienced. They're going to be encountering this work and this, this framework in a different way, completely based on, you know, and very different um, perspectives.
2: Yeah. And I want to call out Amy that like, I think Kim's superpower is, as we all know, the same thing with radical candor is taking these theoretical things and putting them into like very practical frameworks that we can add to our toolkits and leverage very easily on a day-to-day basis. But is this the silver bullet that's going to just totally eradicate workplace injustices? Absolutely not. Like we all have to continue to do the work. Is it one thing that we will be able to leverage that will make an impact? Yes, but we need to continue to do other things. And the last thing is that a lot of people say it's not a sprint it's a marathon. I actually don't think it's a marathon either because for those of us who have run a marathon, there's an end, there's a finish line at the marathon, right? (laughs) Thank goodness. Um, but there is no finish line with this work. It's a journey and it's a journey that we have to be committed to every day for the rest of our lives.
1: Trier, you mentioned about, you know, Kim's superpower and gift of, of identifying not only frameworks to help distill, you know, really complex ideas into simple things we can understand. So, you know, not meaning it, meaning it being mean, bias, prejudice, bullying. But also, Kim, you have some really helpful quick tips on what people can say in that moment in terms of statements. Can you very quickly run us through what you mean by these different these different types of statements to respond to bias, prejudice, and bullying?
0: Sure. I mean one of the things that I struggled with my whole career is what to say when you don't know what to say. My tendency was just to say nothing when I didn't know what to say. And so one of the things that I have tried to do for folks who who are being harmed by workplace injustice is to give them some quick tips on what to say. So if you think what you're dealing with is bias, start with an I statement and an I statement invites someone in to see things from your perspective. So I don't think you meant that the way it sounded, or I'm actually uh, an executive at Twitter. I I managed a call center. There is great nobility in working in call center work, but this person just made an assumption about Trier based on race and gender. And so I think just correcting with an I statement, is very useful in in terms of bias. So if you can't think what to say and you think it's probably biased, just start with the word I and see what comes out of your mouth next. And it's okay if you say, there's no such thing as saying the wrong thing. Uh, As my my great-grandmother needle-pointed a pillow for each of her daughters that said, say something, you can always take it back. So you can adjust. So an I statement can work for bias. Now, what about prejudice? inviting someone in who has a prejudice to see to understand things from your perspective is not going to be effective because they believe they are right they don't really care how it makes you feel and so what you want to do with an it statement is you want to make it very clear what the line is between their freedom to believe whatever they want but their lack of freedom to do whatever they want and so an it statement can appeal to the law it is illegal not to hire someone because of their hair, or it can appeal to a code of conduct at your company. It is not written anywhere in the job description that someone must have straight hair in order to have this job. Or it can appeal to common human decency. It is really ridiculous not to hire someone because of their hair. So that's what an it statement does is it it draws a clear boundary between someone's beliefs and and their freedom to impose those beliefs on, on you or on others. And then finally bullying. My daughter really explained the, The virtue of a you statement when getting bullied to me. She was getting bullied in school and I was kind of coaching her to use an it statement. It makes me feel sad when you knock my lunch off the table or whatever is what I was telling her to say. And she looked at me and she said, mom, he is trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell him he succeeded? That's like giving him a cookie. And I realized she was exactly right. And so so what we did was we thought about a you statement. You can't treat me like that. You can't push my lunch off the table. Or even for people, my my daughter had no problem with those more aggressive you statements. But sometimes that's not comfortable for people. But even just saying, what's going on for you here? And, And the idea is a you statement sort of pushes someone away, whereas an I statement invites them in, and an it statement shows where the boundaries are. And with the you statement, you're sort of putting the onus on the other person to answer for their behavior. So you're, you're not in a submissive role. You're sort of in a more active role with your use statement.
1: Trier, when you were sharing your story, you were talking about how power gets added to the equation. So we've talked about bias, prejudice, and bullying. Can you walk us through the impact that power has on this framework?
2: Yeah. So when we introduce power into the equation, when we take bias and prejudice plus power, we get discrimination, bullying plus power, we get harassment, and then physical touch plus power equals a physical violation. So while bias, prejudice, and bullying those are not positive experience to have and can really have a harmful impact. When you introduce power, though, that's where it can get really bad very quickly. This is ruins people's lives and careers and also organizations. And so leaders have to be very cautious and conscious to not allow power to corrupt their teams and their organizations.
0: We have a lot of very specific suggestions For leaders about how not to let power corrupt their teams. But at a very high level, the checks and balances and being willing to measure one's bias are the two things that we really stress uh, in the book. And there's a lot of specific suggestions about how to put checks and balances and bias quantifiers into your management processes, into the way that you hire, into the way you recruit, into the way that you pay, into the way you promote, into the way you mentor, so that, so that the entire employee life cycle uh, is characterized by more justice and less harassment, discrimination, and physical violations.
1: Trier, before we speak a little bit about the company, I just want to get a insight from you, given your background, um, especially coming from Goldman Sachs and your, your DEI experience, how do you speak with stakeholders about the ROI of this? Obviously we want to do this, you know, because we think it's the right thing to do, but, but how do you make the case? It's not just the right thing to do. It's good for business
2: great question because we actually lead with that. So yes, it's the right thing to do, but we know that the right thing to do goes out the window when you have a bearish quarter or a bearish year. Um, what's really interesting is de budgets were like the first thing to get cut when COVID happened, because you're looking for dollars as people, you know, businesses and revenues were absolutely plummeting. Right. And so you're just looking for areas to cut. And so DE&I, your DE&I budgets, Are the first things that get cut if you're doing it for the right thing to do. And then, Fast forward, um, you know, post the murder of George Floyd and then all of the Black Lives Matter protests that people were scrambling for dollars and budgets to deal with this with their companies, whether it was for marketing or dealing with with your employees internally. And so what we really advise organizations is you have to start with a business case. And it's not just one business case. A lot of organizations have multiple business cases. Um, What is your business case for investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion? And when you have that and it's rooted in your business case in your bottom line, then you're going to be able to hold yourself much more accountable to the resources you put behind that. And so again, the business case is we know that research shows that diverse teams have stronger performance, solve, you know, you're going to pull from better ideas, solving these problems. We know that more diverse teams also higher revenue. So There is so much research that just shows having more diverse people that are solving your problems are going to create stronger teams, create stronger business, and then ultimately create stronger financial returns for your organization.
0: I think there's also just sort of a common sense. You don't even have to measure it aspect to the business case. Like If you're trying to recruit the right people for the right job, do you think it's going to help you if you exclude... 70% 70% of humanity from your consideration set? Like, of course not. Of course you want to make sure that you're looking at the biggest possible candidate pool. If you manage to to hire the right people, do you think you're going to get better results if you're effectively telling these people you've just worked so h- hard to hire to shut up uh, and, and you're not listening to their ideas? Like, of course not. So, so there's also a, so much research that shows... The way that teams succeed is when everyone on a team participates, and yet there's also enormous research that shows the way that underrepresented people are consistently shut down and underestimated, and that's just going to make your team less successful. Kim, is that what you mean by the word just work? So I think just work might have been just too clever by half. Uh, Yes, I meant justice, and I also meant, uh, can't we all just work? And uh, I think a lot of people are three quarters of the way through the book before the justice part of just work uh, occurs to them. So perhaps I I should have come up with a better title. I'm open to ideas, although my editor would kill me if I suggested that we change the title. (laughs) And Trier, what were you saying?
2: Not only is it the business case and, you know, making sure that you have, you can pull the best talent from a broader cast, a wider net, but once you get those individuals within the organization, again, going back to what um, some call the invisible tax, right? So once you get these diverse teams, we want them focused on the work. And so how do we make them, how do we allow for them to have the most inclusive and equitable experience so they're not thinking about those injustices, but they're actually focused and thinking and, you know, doing the work that they need to do. Um, That's where inclusion is so important. So, because diversity is the number and the composition and then inclusion is their experience while they're there and making sure that they have an equitable experience and they feel included and that not only everyone has a seat at the table, but that everyone is also getting fed equally at the table as well.
1: Well thank you both so much. There's there's so much more I know we can go into. There's so much as you say Kim in the book. So one of the things we'll give information about the book in just a moment, but one of the things we found with Radical Candor is that as much as we all love the book Radical Candor, it's really about behavior change and in many ways, you know, the work that you all are doing, there's some really deep-seated beliefs we're having to address. So the idea of just work the company bringing in talks and workshops and coaching and online content. Can you just tell us a little bit more in just a a sentence or two Trier about what you're trying to accomplish with the company of bringing these ideas from the book to life?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It is doing just that. It is taking the theory and the book and how do we actually put it into practice and partner and collaborate closely with organizations and individuals to make sure that we are getting the changed behavior. And so our capabilities are, you know, we kind of have them in two different buckets. One is expose and educate, right? So how do we introduce the framework to individuals of naming your workplace injustices and presenting effective responses to that? But then The second part is evolving and transforming our organizations, right? So those are engagements with organizations and leaders where we go much deeper into the framework and identify specific applications and practical solutions to, you know, what works for that company, meeting the company where they're at and how they can really measure success with implementing these things in their, in their organizations.
0: So I think much like Radical Candor, some of the things that Trier and I have been invited to to offer are are keynote addresses to big teams. Sometimes we're we're asked to come in and do a talk with a smaller team and other times we do half-day workshops with teams to help them engage with these ideas. And then we're also taking a look at doing some more in-depth, extended coaching with teams. Fantastic. Well, this is what the world needs. And I know that if there were two people
1: I could pick to help uh, address this, uh, they're, they're the ones that you're hearing from on this podcast. So I know you all are really excited to learn how you can engage with the Just Work content and team. I'll, I'll highlight a few opportunities for you. There is a course, Just Work Gets You Done Fast and Fair, that's being held in partnership with Chairman Mom. It starts March 16th, happens to be the same day the book is coming out. And you can sign up by going to the justworktogether.com website. Again, this website, justworktogether.com, this has all the information you'll need to get engaged with the Just Work team. You can learn about the talks and workshops that Kim was just speaking about. You can also share your story and you can get on the email list. You also might want to buy the book. You can go to the justworktogether.com website or your book buying website of choice. Again, it's justworktogether.com. We'll put that for you in the show notes. Kim, any final thoughts on this as you launch this really exciting next I would say next chapter. Technically, it's a next book. Uh, uh, in your chapter of your life, to mix metaphors. I'm
0: gonna have one final thought. Please, 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 please buy the book. Buy like five or ten copies of the book if you can swing it. Uh, launching a new book is like giving birth to a child and sending that child off to their first day at work all on the same day. So, uh, so this book is going out there into the world. Please help it be successful.
1: You heard it straight from Kim Scott's mouth. She would love for you to buy the book. This book is for everyone. Just Work is for everyone. As we identify, we all have a role to play and you will learn all about it with the book, with the company. Trier, Kim, thank you so much. I'm so excited to see where this journey takes you all and all of us. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Amy and Radical Candor team. And Trier, such a pleasure to be on this journey with you. Thank you all. Thanks for having us.
1: Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at radicalcandor.com.